Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, my friend. This is Rick Thomas at lifeovercoffee.com. We're having conversations for transformation. This is lesson number five in our friendship series, Building Quality Relationships. We here at Life Over Coffee exist to bring hope and help to you and others by creating resources that spark conversations for transformation. I'm so grateful that you are here, that you are part of this series. If you haven't listened or watched to the first four parts, I would encourage you to do it. There are, le- there are seven all together, and it is best to actually watch the videos, though you can listen to the audios. There are several animations uh, throughout uh, this seven-part series. There's a lot of information to uh, to consume. I also have several uh, screens that where you can download graphics right from the screen using your mobile device. And so I want you to take full advantage of this series. And so if you can watch the video, that would be great. The purpose of the audio is so that you can uh, listen to it again at your leisure. If you watch the video first and then uh, go through the audio series a second time, uh, you can do that as you move about in your car or uh, take walks, and then you would benefit most from it. And so this is lesson number five. We are at the place to where we want to talk about our words that build relationships, the friendship series, building quality relationships. The key verse throughout these lessons is 1 John chapter 4, verse number 12. John said, no one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The big idea in lesson number five is the scriptures teach us words that build up and the scriptures forbid words that tear down. Knowing and practicing these words foster godly relationships. Let's take a look at the outline. Point number one, what is anger? We have to talk about it. Obviously, this is one of our most recurring sin patterns. Point number two, improper word usage. Point number three, social media. I do need to talk about social media because it is a part of our culture and always shall be. Number four, I'm going to break down the eight parts of speech, and then finally, point number five, the best words. One of the most popular and commonly used uh, graphics on our website is what I call the anger spectrum. I'm going to walk through it briefly here just to give you an idea of this recurring problem that is in many of our lives. James talked about anger in chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and and three, and he gave it one label. He called it murder. Murder is a harsh-sounding term, but I do think that it gets our attention, and I also think that it's necessary uh, to communicate anger this way. Uh, James is using hyperbole, of course. His half-brother Jesus used a lot of hyperbole, especially when he wanted to make the point, and because anger is such a part of our lives, our temptation is to round the corners off of our anger to soften it down to uh, acceptable 
to where it's okay uh, to get angry, and we can use terms that does round the corners and dilute it to the point to where we are not even discerning what we are doing to ourselves and to our friends. Well, James rips the tape right off of our masking, and he calls it murder. And again, I think that is a helpful term for those who are serious about ridding themselves of this recurring problem. And so what I have done here is I put uh, anger or murder, to use James's uh, word, I put it on a spectrum. And so over on the left side of the screen, as you see, I have the more volatile forms of anger. I call it loud anger. And I've listed several here, and this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination. You see hatred and boiling mad and sexual abuse, physical abuse, throwing things and road rage. And there are many more with degrees of difficulty and consequences, but all of these are various forms of loud anger. If you push loud anger as far as you possibly can, it would, uh, well, it would end up being physical death. It would be what James is saying in actuality is that it would be murder. But I am calling all of these various forms of murder to borrow from James because I want me, primarily, you secondarily, uh, to make sure that we don't succumb to the temptation of softening our sinful manifestation of anger uh, so that it will not only heighten the awareness, but the Spirit of God would be so grieved and so quenched uh, that our consciences will be so loud that uh, we would want to do something about it. I also trust that none of you are on the left side of this screen, and I would imagine that most Christians are not. If we are going to commit any form of anger, I am calling it subtle anger, as you see, and here are a few manifestations of subtle anger. Again, not an exhaustive list. Perhaps there are things, uh, maybe your most common form of anger is not listed here, but you get the idea. And if you push anger as far as you possibly can in the other direction, you have another form of murder that I am calling the silent treatment, and this is what it would look like. Both silent treatment and physical death say a similar thing, though consequentially they are worlds apart. For example, a physical death says that I do not like you anymore, and so I am going to physically remove you from the earth, and that is physical death or murder. But because Christians will not do that, should not do that, we can succumb to the more subtle forms of anger, even the farthest one on the right side, the silent treatment. And where silent treatment is similar to physical death, not consequentially, again, but similar, is that the silent treatment says, I do not like you, and so I'm not going to murder you physically, but I am going to pretend that you do not exist. And so in between these two extremes of physical murder and silent treatment murder are all these other manifestations of murder, according to James 4. And I trust that it will heighten the awareness in your own mind. And then if you commit any of these, or whichever your most habituated one is, uh, that the Spirit of God would be grieved and quenched, and your conscience would blare away, uh, moving you toward 
repentance so that you're not doing these things any longer. Again, this is lesson number five, and we're talking about our words, which is why we need to talk about our anger. Now, you can put your device over the QR code, and I would love for you to download uh, this graphic from lifeovercoffee.com and that you use it. I think this would be a wonderful lesson to teach in a small group or, or other class, and I would want you to take advantage of it. So if we get inside of our anger, now that we have labeled all anger similarly, we want to try to understand what anger is. Well, starting in the heart, Anger is self-righteousness. Now, I'm talking about sinful anger, of course. You cannot be angry with someone sinfully without elevating yourself above them. Sinful anger looks down on another person. That's the heart of it. It is self-righteousness. It is a person who believes that they are better than morally superior than another person. Therefore, they are gazing down upon them, which is the heart of self-righteousness. And then the behavior, of course, is anger. So what comes out of their mouths is anger. What comes out of their heart is self-righteousness, as Jesus would say in 645 of Luke. Out of the abundance of the heart, self-righteousness. Uh, out of the abundance of the heart uh, comes our words. And, of course, the behavior is anger. The solution to this problem is the gospel. A person with an elevated view of themselves that looks down on other people and manifests in anger does not have a right view of the gospel. The gospel says that we are all totally depraved, that we have all sinned, we have all fallen short of God, uh, we have all uh, missed the mark, and we all need a Savior, and there are no gradations of sinners. Granted, some people have uh, committed far heinous sins than you have, uh, but that's not how we are graded. Uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and everybody fits within the same bucket that we have sinned, totally depraved. And a person that doesn't understand this will elevate themselves above other people as though they are better than other people. We're not better than anyone apart from the alien righteousness that we receive from God. Without his righteousness, we have no righteousness, as Isaiah would say, that even the righteousness that we do have is absolutely filthy. And so we want to guard against devaluing image bearers with our words. I want to show you another graphic that that articulates this. In James chapter 3, again, another part of James, he had a lot to say about the tongue. In fact, chapter 3, he spends the entire chapter, that long paragraph, talking about the tongue. And in verses 9 and 10, he says, with it, with what? With our tongues. We bless our Lord and Father, and with our tongues we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. James says, he makes this appeal, My brothers, these things ought not, so, ought not to be so. And so we don't want to use our tongues devaluing fellow image bearers. People made in the likeness of God does not distinguish between saved or lost, Christian and non-Christian. Everybody is made in the image of God, and we do not want to devalue image bearers. Paul said it this way in 429 of Ephesians, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, 
but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And so uh, this graphic that you see on your screen, I call it the dehumanizing continuum or the dehumanizing spectrum, you could call it. And so I want to lay out uh, different ways that we can use our words. Uh, One of those is best, is exquisite, and the rest of those, well, they just get worse as we move along. And so, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, we want to encourage, we want to build up as fits the occasion. We want to give grace to those who hear. We don't want to use corrupting speech, corrupting speech patterns. It has a degrading effect on people. And so as you move on the screen from left to right, I just want to walk through a non-exhaustive list of some of the ways that we can degrade or use our speech in a corrupting way. One of those is silence. And I have silence in gray here because sometimes it's better not to answer a fool. But in context of the previous slide, I'm talking about silent treatment. And of course, uh, that's the most subtlest form of murder of all. Again, self-control, having discretion, not speaking could be a good thing. And again, that's why I have it grayed, grayed out. Uh, because it can go either way. Then criticism, mocking, sarcasm. Sarcasm, uh, you see the word sarks in the word sarcasm. Uh, Sarks is the Greek word for flesh. And the picture there in sarcasm is that is that of a meat cutter, a sarcastic person. A meat cutter uh, cuts away the devalued parts of the meat. They cut away the parts that they do not want to save, and they only want to save the prime parts of the meat, and so it cuts away. And that's the picture of sarcasm. It is cutting away of the flesh. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, and most definitely in my family, as I was uh, growing up as a child, sarcasm was a skill. Uh, It was a carefully honed skill that uh, I became uh, pretty good at as well as my brothers. And this is where we do have to be careful. I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't have fun and poke at each other, uh, but those are within relationships that have been established, and there's a relational bridge, there's a context, there is an understanding of value between each other, and there's also an understanding uh, that the words are not laced with uh, meaning Uh, or any kind of hidden or subtle meanings uh, when we are making fun or poking at one another. I am speaking of the worst iterations of this on this dehumanizing continuum. As you move to the right, uh, there is uh, ridicule. Of course, pornography is a objective objectification, uh, typically of women, uh, which means a devaluing of women. Racism is obvious. Abuse, of course. Abortion and then murder. I've distinguished uh, murder and abortion here because abortion is murder, uh, but I wanted to highlight it uh, by itself because it is so prevalent and such a 
culturally hot topic. And so it is a version of murder, but I wanted it to stand alone. And so as you look at this graphic here, you're welcome to download it by putting your camera over the QR code. And you can have this graphic. Of course, you can uh, print it off if you want and add more words if you wish, because again, this is not an exhaustive list. It's just an idea that our words are to build up. And if we are devaluing image makers, we are going against what James is teaching us in chapter 3. We're sinning against God, and we need to repent of that because we need to practice using speech that builds up each other. And so let's talk about improper word usage. I want to ask you a question or two, and this will be part of your homework assignment for lesson number five. And so the question is, are you impulsive with your words? Yes or no? Do you fling them out like arrows when irritated because you're angry and lack self-control? The next question, are you afraid to speak up because you're more concerned about how others perceive you? Do you crave a reputation, a particular kind of reputation? How does your craving for reputation govern your communication? Now, what I want you to see in these two questions are the extremes in these questions. On one extreme, you have the impulsive person who flings out their words when they're irritated. They have no fear of man whatsoever. They are not concerned about their reputation. They just let the words fly. They tear down people with their language. They dice people up with their tongues. Uh, it is a mean-spirited way of communicating. Communication. And then on the other extreme, as you see with the question, this is a fear-centered person who struggles with the fear of man. Therefore, they are more governed, and when they need to speak, they do not speak. By the way, we have a course at lifeovercoffee.com. It is about how to overcome being controlled by the opinion of other people. And if you struggle with the fear of man, I would encourage you to get that course and go through it. It is quite thorough. It is extensive. It is deep, and it will do some exhaustive examination of you as you try to uh, rid out fear of man. Put it off, as Paul said in Ephesians 4, teaching you how to renew your mind and how to put on Christ. And so if you are given to uh, the fear of man, I would encourage you to check out that course at lifeovercoffee.com. But there are two extremes here. And so I would love for you to screenshot uh, this particular slide and then work through these questions. I recognize that the questions are yes and no, close-ended, but I want them to be discussion questions. And so if you take this slide and, and share it with a friend and then uh, talk through both extremes, you may find you're on one extreme and your friend is on the other, uh, this would be a worthy conversation to have. Now, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about social media. I want to make several points about it because uh, this is a part of our communication. This is a part how some people build relationships, unfortunately. And so I want to work through social media in this lesson number five about using proper words in relationships. And the first thing that I want to say is that social media is a false intimacy. Sometimes 
oftentimes. People are insecure. They have experienced relational distress in many forms. Social media can give a hurting or cynical soul a portal to maintain relational contact with humanity but at harm's length. I talked about cynicism in the last lesson, lesson number four, about being hurt by other people, mistrust in relationships. And so I won't repeat what I said about cynicism since it's there in lesson four. But this idea of false intimacy is real. And some people have degraded their view and practice of relationship to such a degree that they are satisfied with social media relationships. By the way, that also applies to our website, too. We have private forums for people who support our ministry, who underwrite our ministry financially. And we do not want those private forums to stand in the place of how they build relationally. We have a high view of the local church. We have a higher view of the family because it is families that make up the local church. And so we have a high view of the family, a high view of the local church, and we believe that people should be building their familial relationships and then fold those into their local churches not giving in to this false intimacy of social media. But again, I realize that some people have been hurt, and because of their hurt, they can yield to that temptation. Another aspect of social media is what I call the disinhibition effect. This is not a label that I have come up with, but from people who have studied the effects of social media, they call this the disinhibition effect. And it means this, communication in cyberspace creates invisible walls, tempting people to say nasty things. They're not inhibited. They're disinhibited. And so they say nasty things. Their lack of inhibition removes discretion. It opens the way to being unkind. Popping off to strangers is a common occurrence. I'm sure you have seen this, if not experienced this. I trust you have not participated in this. Rarely will you see such things as forgiveness and reconciliation. Now, there are many reasons that I don't talk to people on social media. This is one of them. It's not how I choose to build relationships. I want to build relationships with people that are in my real-world space. I'm not interested in building relationships with people in cyberspace, not to the degree of what I'm teaching here through this friendship series. I know there's benefit through communication through cyberspace. I get it. We, uh, have, we're masters at it as far as our private forums are concerned. There are many people that would testify that this is a wonderful means of grace that God has given to his children at lifeovercoffee.com. But it is secondary to the primary way that we should be building relationships. But sometimes in social media, you will see this disinhibition effect and it is people who are popping off to strangers, things that they would never say to them to their face. But when you build social media relationships, you open yourself up to the disinhibition effect. Number three, normalizing behavior. And what I mean by this is parents pass their habits, their social media habits, to their children, encouraging them, even in a passive or unwitting way, to do similarly 
even weaponize the children too soon with a foam so they can feed their narcissism by plastering themselves and their half-baked views all over the Internet. This is perplexing to me, but when parents spend so much time on social media, they are normalizing the behavior. And what I mean by that, they're saying it's okay. And their children are observing that. And parents will go so far as to put their children's pictures all over social media, Facebook, Instagram, etc., that is giving tacit that this is okay to do this, normalizing a behavior, not recognizing, being ignorant of how susceptible children are to these social media platforms and then not realizing that on the other side of these social media platforms are algorithmic evangelists who set up the algorithms to entice young minds to come into their web of whatever it is that they're trying to inculcate nefarious, I'm talking about primarily, parents do this to their children, and social, by using social media uh, in these ways, they normalize the behavior. It also feeds narcissism. The serial selfie is the perfect picture that reveals a person's infatuation with themselves. I illustrate it this way. Imagine going to someone's home, and they <laughs> they open their photo album, and they show you 20 pictures of themselves with their latest hairstyle. Now, women do this more than men. Men do it. I don't see as much, but women way more susceptible to this. And you go on their Facebook page, for example, and and you could just swipe, swipe, swipe. And it's just many times it's 15 pictures of the same picture. I don't understand. I honestly do not understand, except they have this narcissistic view of themselves. Uh, There's something internally wrong with them. It could be in part, ignorance, I get it, Uh, but uh, it feeds narcissism, and then when these people put their latest picture, uh, normalizing this behavior for their children, as I talked about in the previous slide, uh, then they put their hairstyle or whatever it is they've done to themselves, and of course, they're going to get the comments that feed that narcissism, you're so beautiful, etc., etc. This is a bad practice, and I would just encourage anyone uh, that you steer away from it because uh, there is no pathway that can lead to anything good. It can only get worse from uh, here. And then it circumvents sanctification. Transformation happens in long-term memory, but the Internet retrains the brain to think in spurts, and the reward is one dopamine bump for each like. I like this, I like that, I like the other thing. It creates an almost unbreakable behavior. People don't seem to understand that sanctification does not happen in short-term memory, but long-term memory. And in order for something to move down into our psyche, into our long-term memory, uh, it has to move past the curve of forgetfulness. The curve of forgetfulness is about 30 days. So when you start learning something, uh, you have to keep learning it and retaining it, rehearsing it, and practicing it, because after the first minute, the first hour, the first day, the first week, and that end of 30 days, it's just not there. And then if it, after 30 days, if you haven't practiced to, retra- to retain it, then it's not there. But the problem with social media is that, that we it doesn't permit us to take the time to allow one thing to sink down into our long-term memory. 
It creates a very bad habit as we start to think in spurts as we like one thing after the next thing, and we can't remember four things back because that is not how memory works, and that's also not how sanctification works. And so I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about this dangerous social media that parents parents normalize it, and it's just totally befuddling to me, and it's very sad. It's just it's sad, it's sad to watch. There are redemptive ways to use social media, and there are non-redemptive, and having the wisdom to distinguish between the two and the courage to go and use it uh, redemptively, uh, that is what we need to spend time thinking about so that we do not fight. We're not self-ensnaring ourselves to social media. Now I want to talk about the eight parts of speech. Again, this is lesson five, talking about words and how our words uh, build these quality relationships, which is what this series is about. So I have uh, my friend Biff here, and he wants to walk you through a theology of speech, the eight parts of speech. And of course, uh, it begins, number one, with the gospel. This is the point of departure in these eight parts of speech. So part one is the gospel. The gospel, correct speaking, and speech patterns must begin with the gospel. A synonym for the gospel, by the way, is Christ. He is the good news. If a person has not been affected by Christ, their words cannot be redemptive. How you end, what you say, that's how you end, will be determined by how you began. The gospel, that's where you start. Somebody must redeem you if you want your language to be redemptive, restorative. Let me push the point further. There are degrees to which a person can be affected by the gospel. And so when God regenerated me in 1984, I was a babe in Christ. I was an infant in Christ. And so my being affected by the gospel was limited. But then as I matured in Christ, my effect of the gospel on my life. It was greater, deeper, broader, wider, and hopefully more mature. And of course, that will affect your language too. And so the more that Christ has affected you, that will impact the words that you use. And so when you think about the eight parts of speech, the gospel is the starting blocks that you uh, begin with. And if you start with the gospel, the chances of ending well will be strong and secure. Number two in the eight parts of speech is theology. Everybody has a theology, including the devil. Your speech must begin with theology and the gospel. And so the gospel regenerates you, because if you're not regenerated by the gospel, the theology that you have could be devilish. Your theology can be pretty devilish if the gospel has not transformed you. The gospel establishes the footing upon which sound theology will stand. So you can think about it like building blocks. If the gospel is not under, underneath your theology, then your theology will not be what it should be. The gospel-transformed life is ready to support gospel-centered theology. The second part of speech is theology. The third is our presupposition. You can think of your presupposition as the interpretive filter from which all words proceed. It's a window that comes before your thoughts 
It's a window that comes before your words. It's the window that shapes your thoughts and shapes your words. And so your your presupposition will give the contour to your thoughts, and it will give uh, the contour to your words. Words are not neutral. Words are not neutral or detached from your presupposition. Everybody has a presupposition. Everybody has a filter through which their thoughts and words go. And when their thoughts and words go through that filter, that filter will determine what those thoughts and those words are. Your presupposition supplies the words that communicates what you believe to others. Therefore, you have to be transformed by the gospel. You build a a theology on top of that gospel foundation, and now you have a filter through which to push your thoughts and words through. Eight parts of speech. Number four is the heart. In the context of this lesson, the heart represents the animating center of your being, the place that can defeat idolatries or give life to them. Fear, regret, shame, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, and unbelief can find home in our hearts. And so think about it this way. If you have been transformed by the gospel, you are building a sound theology, you have a presuppositional filter, then fear, regret, shame, bitterness, anger, unforgiveness, and unbelief will will not bring shape to your words and thoughts. So now your heart is in a proper place because of these preceding three things. Gospel, theology, presupposition, and heart. Number five are your thoughts. Our minds are where we assemble our words The parts that make up the construction material come from everything previously stated. Gospel, theology, presupposition, and heart. When you combine these four things, they will form our thoughts, our thinking, what we're thinking about. A gospel-transformed life that has sound theology creating a presuppositional filter that has reshaped our heart, and now our thoughts, the construction material becomes our thoughts. It's the last stop before our words come out of our mouths, and that's number six, words. Our thoughts, good or bad, form our words. These words are little soldiers who march off our tongues to wave the banner of Christ or not. They spread throughout our sphere of influence. They can wreak destruction or build people up redemptively. As you can see, our words are not neutral, but determined, developed, and deployed to be divine or destructive. It is from the abundance of the heart that our mouths speak in Luke 6.45, as Jesus said. Eight parts of speech. Number six is words. Number seven is speech. Finally, we speak. We have our words that come from our thoughts. We say something. All the other component-shaping influences have influenced us, and we finally and irretrievably deploy our words with purpose. They reveal to the world our belief system, good or bad. There is no hiding this truth about our communication. Of course, you can always repent, but you can never retrieve your words. And thank God for repentance. And then the eighth part of speech is effect. 
You can explore whether your words are the words of the Spirit by the effect that your communication has on others. There is a simple way to examine the impact of your speech. Talk to those who hear you the most. How have you affected them? What did they say when you asked them how you have affected them? It would be a critical leadership opportunity to ask, though the external evidence of how you affect others should already be apparent. And so here's your homework assignment in this lesson number five, words that build relationships. I want you to have a conversation with those who have been affected the most by you, those who hear you the most. How have you affected them? And so here are the eight parts of speech in order, gospel, theology, presupposition, heart, thoughts, words, speech, and effect. Now, if you want to download this graphic, put your camera over the QR code, and you can download the eight parts of speech graphic and, of course, use it for your own personal benefit. We bring hope and help for you and then also for others here at Life Over Coffee. Now, let's close with the best words. I want to walk through a, a sequence of, of, of the best words, and let me begin this way. The key to encouraging speech is the word redemptive. You can switch encourage with redemptive to make it clearer. Encouraging speech, redemptive speech, they're kind of synonymous. Being nice may feel encouraging, but it might not be redemptive. Saying hard things may not feel encouraging, but it is redemptive. As ambassadors, we speak for Christ. God appeals to others through us. It is a privilege and a sobering responsibility. And so I want to share a few sequential benefits of those who are Christ-like in their communication as I wrap up lesson number five, words that build relationships. Point number four, last point is the best words. Here's the sequence. We share the gospel message when we use the best words. Number two, the hearers hear the heart of Christ. Number three, the Spirit magnifies Christ. Number four, God's light and life penetrate the hearer. Number five, the Spirit changes lives. Number six, Christ receives glory, and then number seven, the gospel mission advances. And so I would encourage you, you can screenshot this to take a look at it or stop the video and make these notes. It is an excellent sequence, and it's something that we want to uh, not just learn, but make sure this is our practice, and we will know if it's our practice if we're using the best words. The big idea in lesson number five, the scriptures teach us words that build up and forbid words that tear down. Knowing and practicing these words foster godly relationships. One more thing, please pray, follow, share our ministry with whomsoever will. And then if you're able to underwrite our ministry by supporting or donating, uh, please do that. We do need your help as we give our resources away. If you're interested in becoming a Mastermind student, you can uh, put your phone over the QR code here, and you can learn all about our all-online self-paced biblical counseling training. You can become skilled in disciple-making according to the capacity that God has given you. We would love to train you. You can become our next Mastermind student. 
This is lesson number five, Words That Build Relationships. This is the Friendship Series, Building Quality Relationships. My name is Rick Thomas. I appreciate you so much for listening and watching uh, this video. Uh, please find me at lifeovercoffee.com. That is our web address, our sanctification center, and take advantage of all of these resources at Life Over Coffee, where we have conversations for transformation. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.